Welcome to the Brilliantly Resilient Podcast. What's your train wreck? Everyone has one. The question is, are you going to live there or are you just visiting? Let's check in with Mary Fran and Kristen to learn how to come through not broken, but brilliant. episode of Brilliantly Resilient Live. And before we jump into the really cool stuff that we're going to bring you today, we have a super important message for you. Did you hear that Brilliantly Resilient, the book is out in the world and it landed on the top 100 bestsellers list. That's where it debuted. We're so excited. Go get it at amazon.com. Search Brilliantly Resilient and you'll see it in Kindle and paperback. Enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Brilliantly Resilient Live. We have just been having so much fun here today. I'm Mary Fran Bontempo with my partner in crime, Kristen Smedley, and we have been already laughing and having a great time with our guest, Samuel Moore Sobel. We are so excited to have him today. He has an incredible story, and as we love to share in Brilliantly Resilient, has overcome a whole lot of crap. To, to share his brilliance with us. So Samuel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Um, so we were initially connected to uh, each other through a friend of ours, Lisa Gear, who wrote Flashback Girl. And you have, a, I don't wanna say a similar story, but you had a trauma with, um, with your life too. So I'm gonna kind of turn it over to you and just let you tell us a little bit about uh, your story, your background, and where all of your amazingness originated from. Awesome. Well, thanks again for having me on. Uh, my, my story begins on September 1st, 2009. I was 15 years old. I was a week away from starting my sophomore year of high school, and I was completing a bunch of odd jobs that summer uh, in the hopes of earning a, a few extra bucks before starting my sophomore year of high school. And I was hired by a man in my community who lived just a few blocks away, who wanted someone to help him move boxes and furniture, uh, as he described it from his home to uh, a storage, storage facility that was nearby. Uh, when I got there on September 1st, 2009, the details had suddenly shifted. And it was a common theme throughout the day that, you know, I, at the time I would chalk it up to miscommunications, but it happened over and over again. And so upon arrival, uh, I was told, no, actually, we were going to be taking everything from the storage facility and bringing it back to his home. And then from there, everything left over, we would take to a friend's house. Uh, he said that this friend had a shed that was just a few minutes down the road. Uh, it turned out uh, it was actually more than 45 minutes down the road, and we crossed county lines to go to this person's home. Uh, I didn't know where we were. We're, we're driving this big U-Haul truck. He's, he's driving this truck and not recognizing my surroundings. Uh, and eventually we make our way to this home, and it's at the top of this hill. Uh, and this shed that he wants to put his things in is at the bottom of the hill. So he backs the U-Haul truck down the hill. And, you know, we get out, we meet the homeowner. Uh, she goes to open the shed and it's just packed with belongings. And uh, she mentions, oh, we're gonna have to empty the shed in order to get the things from the truck onto the shed. So as you can see, the job just keeps getting this, bigger. This has shady written all over it. Like <laughs> totally, totally shady. And you, like you're a 15 year old kid. And like you said, you're trying to just earn a couple of extra bucks. So of course you're gonna go along with it because at that point in your life, even though you're wary of adults, you still figure, all right, this, this is an adult. I'll be, it'll be fine. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you, you know, I grew up in a house where adults were, you know, what an adult said was was venerated, right? It was like you, you listen to adults. And so I was kind of like, oh, well, this seems really weird. But, you know, they, they, they maybe there's a method to the madness here. And, uh, you know, we're, hopefully it'll work out. Uh, sadly, it did not. But, uh, you know, we, we go to the open the shed. Uh, like I said, she a box makes his way into my hands. Uh, the homeowner tells me just toss it. I look down in this box. It's an it's a cardboard box, just a normal moving box. It's open, so no tape on it, uh, covering it or closing it rather. And I look down, and it's books and hay. And when I say hay, it's literally like straw protruding from this box. And I think this is a really odd assortment of items. But who might have <laughs> people have in their sheds? <laughs> so. I just moved, and I have some very odd boxes that I moved. Well, I don't think any of them had hay in them, did they? Because I helped you. That's carry the one thing we didn't bring with us, Mary oh, Fran. We did I... not bring the hay. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, I can't books even imagine. and hay. Books and hay. Yeah, this really is kind strange. Of unfolding like if Stephen King wrote a children's book. <laughs> It's creeping me out, but please continue. It's creeping me out too. Oh my God. I'm terrified for you. And I, and I know what's coming. I'm terrified. Oh my God. Okay. Keep going. So, so I looked at it and, you know, like I said, I look at this box, I think, okay, well, well, you know, they, they're telling me to toss it. So I toss it and there's a cement slab that's just a few feet away. And she's telling us the trash is going to come get it in a few days. So we're just tossing everything onto the cement slab. Uh, so I toss the box as instructed, and the second it hits that cement slab, an explosion rings out. And I see this substance come flying towards me. I, I don't know what it is, but I see it. And thankfully, I close my eyes, and then I feel it hit my face. Oh. And just within a second or two, the pain began. Oh, my God. So what was it that they had in that box? So it turns out, so I would find out later that apparently it was a glass jar of sulfuric acid that was at the bottom of this box uh, for- Who packed this stuff? What was this person Wait, thinking? was this, and maybe I'm jumping ahead, but I, I always do. I flip to the end of the book. I go right to the finish line because <laughs> I'm having a little bit of a panic attack. It, were they, was this intentional or they just had weird stuff in boxes? So that's the great question that's never been answered, right? It's been more than 11 years and I, I still don't know the answer to that question. I, at the time, what happened was, you know, I get led up the hill, the, the man calls 911, he, he, they ask him what the substance is, he says, I don't know, he hands me the photo, goes back down to find it, and I'm standing at the top of this hill alone on the phone with 911, writhing in pain, I think I'm going to die, I think this is the end, uh, I've never experienced this amount of pain before in my life. And nobody's there, you know, she's the 911 operator trying to get people to, you know, she wants people to put water on my face, nobody's there to do it. It's just this weird, everything slows down. It's this weird, you know, kind of just uh, uh, ultra universe, other universe event. And, you know, the, finally the paramedics arrived, they put me into the stretcher, onto a stretcher and into the ambulance. And I remember looking around and seeing the property surrounded by trees and thinking, you know, wondering if this is going to be the last time I see trees. Eventually, so they go ask the homeowner. So this is relayed to me as they talk to the homeowner. She she claimed at the time that it belonged to her ex husband. That it he used it for metal etching, and so that's why he had this glass jar of sulfuric acid uh, mm -hmm. there. Um, there's been some dispute. Some doctors have disputed that, saying that if it was, it would have burned through the metal because it burned my face. It was a high concentration of the acid, so that may or may not be true. Uh, but yeah, that that that's the only explanation that this person offered. Uh, at the time. Well, and at that point, it's kind of pointless. Like, I mean, obviously they needed, the, it would have helped to know exactly what it was, but it's done. Yeah. 
Well, I can also say from firsthand experiences that ex-husbands leave weird things in garages. <laughs> That's just a little sidebar for the listeners. <laughs> Never know what they were doing with some of that stuff and you had to move it. So, so here's, here's where, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing, but at the same time, I got this feeling in the pit of my stomach when you said, after you laid it out there of the year of school that you were in, and this was a job, and now you're on this hill by yourself burning, and my daughter, my youngest, it just wrapped up sophomore year and she's about to go out and do, you know, have jobs at people's houses and all. So I'm like, I'm, I'm like imagining my daughter standing there and it's, it's making my stomach turn. Well, your parents must have been beside themselves. I mean, I can't even imagine what they must have felt in that situation. So what keep going. I I'm speechless. I can't even. I can't. And here's the other thing for everybody that's listening on the podcast or that cannot see the video. Samuel is your face is your skin glows. Your smile is so big. So I am so interested now where you've gotten us to how you're getting to this big, gorgeous smile that you can even smile after everything that I'm sure you went through and, and what happened next. So, so go, go. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. No, yeah. And I look, you know, just for your listeners, I look a lot different today than I did back then. My, my doctor jokes that I look like I got in a bad bike accident, not that I was burned with sulfuric acid. So the outcomes have been really good. It took a, it was a long road to get here. Um, again, I'm coming more, more than 11 years. I'm coming to you after more than 11 years after this accident. But uh, yeah, really, really miraculous outcomes. Uh, you know, end up going to the hospital, uh, get thrown into a chemical shower. Uh, and from the beginning, they're, they're telling me they're going to be moving me to a, another facility that can better treat my burns. Uh, and so they're going to medevac me to Children's Hospital in Washington, D.C. Uh, and so and end up getting medevac taken there. Um, and, and my parents meet me there. And I, I just remember, you know, that first night in the hospital where I just felt like, life had been altered in a way that was never going to go back to normal. I mean, I, I just remember lying awake, having trouble going to sleep and thinking, am I going to be able to graduate from high school on time? Am I going to be able to go to college? Can I get a job? Well, you know, I, I remember thinking even that first night, something that I would take with me for a long time was, will anyone ever fall in love with me? Will a girl ever want to go out with me because of how I look? And at that time, you know, I, I remember seeing myself for the first time, uh, where it, I was asked by a nurse, oh, have you seen yourself? And I said, no, and they threw a mirror into my lap. Uh, and, and so I kind of saw myself for the first time without any, any parents around or any psychologist uh, or social worker. Uh, and it was just these, you know, black and, and brown and green stains. I mean, my face just, I, I didn't look like myself. I didn't know the image that was reflected back to me and it was frightening. And, and so, uh, you know, originally it was just a really long road of recovery. Uh, you know, I go through, I have a surgery the next morning and then they've released me. There's nothing more that they can do. They, they do tell my parents that it was miraculous that I could see. They didn't have a medical explanation for why I could see based on the condition of my eyelids and how badly burned my eyelids had been. Um, and actually my eyebrow, half of it had been burned off uh, mm. as a result of this. Um, so, you know, and, and another, another life threatening thing would have been if I had swallowed just one drop, it could have burned my esophagus. It could have ruined my organs. I would have been looking at an organ transplant. So they're testing me in the hospital and I don't know any of this at the time, but that's what they're looking for um, because it is, it is a fatal sub that would have been fatal for me. So, you know, coming so close to death was something that was really sobering. And I just remember driving home, you know, my parents driving me back that, that next day and wondering what life was going to look like. It just felt really hopeless. And, and I had no roadmap 
from how I was going to get from A to B, how I was going to get from this horrible tragedy to healing. And first of all, you're 15. You're 15. Like at that point in life when you're, you know, you're still forming your identity and you have all those questions and you want to fit in with people and everything. And now, you know, you're not fitting in with anybody because nobody else has had this experience, but even more profound, your parents had no playbook for this. Like they couldn't even, how do you even begin to help your child heal from something like this? No parent who's experienced that kind of a tragedy or, or an accident, you're, you're thrown into this. And, and I can't even imagine the helplessness all around that all of you must have felt. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, we really did. I mean, it just felt like, you know, I remember going back to so the, the first few months I was on homebound tutoring. I didn't go back to school like the rest of my sophomore class, uh, you know, I, I, because of the risk of infection. And so teachers would have to come in the afternoon and come teach me. Uh, and so much like we were doing now, the pandemic in some ways was kind of familiar in that I, I you know, I, I was essentially, you know, isolated and spending months at home, uh, which was really hard because I, I felt like, you know, I, I'm naturally an extrovert. I like being around people. And so it was hard for me to, you know, be, it felt even more isolating. And then, as you say, like when I went back to school, uh, it, it was very clear I was not fitting in. And, you know, thankfully I didn't really experience bullying, which was a concern my parents and I both had, but, you know, it just, people just kind of drifted away. And those friends I had from freshman year, they just, it, they didn't know what to say to me. And I, I saw it in their, in their face when they would kind of encounter me and I could see it and I don't blame them. I mean, I barely knew what to say to myself. Right. So, so I think it was, it was just a really hard experience. And so I felt really alone and felt like I had to figure out how to do all of this on my own. It was just me and my, and my family. And, th and that was it. We were out there. It was us against the world trying to figure out how to, you know, how to get to healing. And it was a really long road. So this is interesting to me. And I'm so, I'm, I'm very interested to hear the next pieces of this, of what you guys did to move forward because of so many layers. But one specific layer is my two sons are blind. Now they're college age now, but, and I can, I can feel so many people listening to this, nodding their heads because whether it's blindness, um, burn, uh, your family goes through a divorce, something horrible happens at that age. I watched the exact same thing that you're talking about. The kids don't know what to say. So they say nothing and they disappear. And then eventually some of them came back and I, and just like you, I mean, you can't fault them. They don't have strategies for that. So my question to you is, and, and maybe it's something we can do a follow-up if you don't have the answer yet to this is what, what did you do? What, how did you, when you internalized all that, what would you say to the those kids and parents of when things like this happen? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I, I think that through my, what I learned through this experience was, you know, I had to figure out not only the physical aspect of healing, but also the emotional, you know, it, it, the first few months, it's really focused on the physical, you know, and, and over, I should add to, I mean, over, my last surgery was just three or four years ago. I've had more than a dozen operations to my face. Uh, you know, I, I had uh, facial reconstructive surgery, laser operations, uh, just really anything you could think of, uh, you know, all sorts of different operations to try to address the physical scars that I had. But as the months, those first few months went by and you get away from kind of that adrenaline and the focus on the initial trauma, you start to see those emotional scars. And for me, the emotional scars were even more impactful than the physical scars that, that I had in some ways. They were really affecting my daily life. Um, you know, I, I found myself being having irritability and symptoms of anger and insomnia and even some suicidal ideation. And 
eventually, you know, went to counseling. And I would just say to anybody listening, like counseling, I, I can't say enough about how helpful that was for me. I wouldn't be where I am today without it. I'm a big believer in that. Uh, but, you know, for me, I, I, what was shared with me in counseling that I've carried with me ever since is this idea of a toolbox. And so my psychiatrist would encourage me, you know, develop the tools, the necessary tools so that you can combat the symptoms that you're experiencing and work through the pain and the trauma that you've experienced. But I think it's also kind of a way to, to reach healing, right? And so, so I think the toolbox looks different for everybody. For me, different tools were uh, journaling and finding a way to write about this experience. It was sharing this experience with people I trusted who I knew weren't going to say hurtful or negative things. You know, it was, it was a way to kind of, you know, be able to have some sounding boards. Uh, it was, you know, trying to, to diet and exercise, which was hard being in and out of, of surgeries. Uh, but, you know, different tools like that to really kind of be able to get from, you know, this place of really viewing my scars as objects of shame. You know, I'd look in the mirror and I hated what I saw. I, it reminded me of the worst day of my life. It was almost triggering to look in the mirror. Uh, but, you know, really transforming that through developing those tools and then reaching a place where I could look back and say, uh, you know, I, I'm not happy this happened. And of course, if I was given the opportunity to go back in time and change it, I would. But there's lessons I learned along the way that I wouldn't have learned any other way. And so for me, I can see now with the benefit of hindsight that, you know, this, this really in some ways that, you know, it makes me, my scars make me more empathetic leader. They make me a better husband. There, there's so many ways in which these scars are, you know, no longer objects of shame, but objects of survival and even triumph. Wow. That is, that's amazing. And you hit on so many of the things um, that, that Kristen and I talk about, like we always say her sons were born blind. My son was a heroin addict and suffered from substance abuse for many, many years. And we always say to people, we will never tell you that it was a blessing because it sucked. It was horrible and we would never wish it on anyone. But when something like that happens, you have a choice. You either live there as a victim for the rest of your life, or you recognize that, as you said, okay, I learned things. And not only do you learn things that apply to that moment, but we also talk about these transferable skills that you then have in your toolbox that you can carry to other things. And when you start to feel those things, you go, oh, wait a minute, I recognize this. What do I need to do to, you know, to, to help myself here or help this to move away. So you're a kid, you're experiencing all of this. And now you wrote a book called, Can You See My Scars? So how do you, you've taken these lessons clearly and you move them through your, your young adolescent trauma and into adulthood. How did that progression take place? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. I, for, for me, the, the book project was one that was took me almost a decade. I mean, it was one of those things where it started with, okay, I'll use this tool of journaling. My psychiatrist is encouraging me to do this. And I'd always liked writing and always been a writer. Uh, so it was something that came naturally to me. And so I would, I would write, I would write my feel feelings and, and some of it was really raw and, um, you know, I, really going through that, I would add to just going through that grieving process of grieving the loss of my face, um, you know, grieving the loss of, uh, you know, I felt like my adolescence, my young adulthood had been taken from me because of this. And, and so just really grieving all this at the lost relationships, the, all of the things that I felt like, you know, I had lost, but really, you know, writing it gave me the distance I needed to see it a little bit differently. And so for me, writing the book was, was twofold. One, I wanted to 
be able to go back and look at my story and see all of it together, the cumulative effect and kind of see all of it, you know, instead of just seeing those pieces, so much happened over that, you know, nine or 10 year period, but being able to go back and see it all together, I could, I could pick out some of the things that I could be grateful for. And, and some of those things that, Hey, I'm glad that I wasn't blind. I'm glad this wasn't worse. I'm glad, you know, some of those things that I could see yeah. collectively and I could see the way people were there for me, even if it felt lonely at the time, there were some people, if a handful who would come along and be there for me. And so that was one reason to do it. The second reason was to take this uh, as an opportunity to share my scars with the world. I mean, I, what I've learned through this experience and for your listeners, you know, we all have scars. They may not be as visible as mine were or are, but we all have those internal scars. We all know what it's like to experience loss and trauma. And, you know, none of us are immune from adversity. And so I think that, you know, the, the question isn't so much, are we going to experience adversity? It's, it's the question of what are we going to do once we do, you know, how are we going to respond? And so I wanted to share this story and share my scars with the world uh, and find a way to, to make an impact uh, for good. And, and for me, just having people who've read my book, who've, you know, been impacted by it, it's been so healing for me. It's been such a capstone to my process because it's transformed this accident that never should have been into something that is redemptive. You know, it's made an impact on others' lives. And so that's been so redeeming for me. And it's just been amazing to have an opportunity to share this story and, and have others be impacted by what I have to say. I have, I have a question. I'm very interested to know. Before the accident, were you this positive and magnetic and enjoying other people the way that I see you right now? Were you like that before the accident? You know, that's, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I've had friends tell me who knew me before and after that, that I didn't change all, what changed was there's a little bit more, perhaps I was a little bit Pollyanna-ish. There was that, you know, very positive kind of like, you know, that, that before the accident and afterwards it's, I'm just as positive, but I just have that, I'm grounded a little bit more realism. I know what can happen. And so there's that realistic aspect that suffering brings for all of us of kind of knowing what can happen. But I think I did always have that element of being very positive and, and being, you know, enjoying being around people. And that I've carried that with me uh, even through the accident. That's interesting because I feel the exact same way. I was always like, I wanted to have a good time and I was always the fun one and all. And then, and, and you said it, Pollyanna, like, you know, so things would be hard and I thought that they were way too hard. Then you get two blindness diagnoses and whammo, like, you know, and then a divorce that we could go on and on, Samuel, <laughs> lovely stuff, right? That I'm, I've got quite the toolbox, but the lens that I look through things now, as I still carry that positivity. And I mean, it was, it disappeared for a little while. And I think that was the hardest part when you said like, you didn't look like you, I didn't feel like me because I wasn't able to find a silver lining anywhere. You know, it just reminded me, we talked to our friend, David Fagenbaum, that um, he wrote a story of his life that he almost died five times with this rare disease. And he says, if you can't find the silver linings, create them. And that mm -hmm. was life-changing for me during COVID because I would always find one. And then when I couldn't find one, I was like even more devastated. You know, I needed a unicorn or a rainbow because <laughs> they followed me <laughs> everywhere. But I love that you said that, that it was a little more Pollyanna and now you've got the real lens with the positivity. And I think that is what is so, um, making you so magnetizing that, that you're real and people can relate to you, but still with that positive uplifting. Thank you. Yeah. I totally relate to what you said. It's, it's true. It's, it's that, 
you know, it, there were times where it did kind of disappear. And I talk about that in my book. I mean, I, the book is in no way uh, saying I did everything right. There was plenty of mistakes I made. And, and, you know, there was moments where I really succumbed to self-pity and, you know, was just really poor me, poor me, and really focused, you know, really inside my own head. And, you know, I really, there were moments where I, I didn't feel like me. I really relate to that. I didn't feel like me. I didn't, you know, look like me. And I really was questioning whether he was in worth going forward. But for me, I never lost hope. I mean, I, ne I always had that hope that things were going to turn around and I didn't know how it was going to happen. I think the hard thing, right, being 15 is you don't have the life experience that, you know, as you kind of move, the, the great gift of life experience is you can look back and say, wow, I made it through that experience. I can make it through whatever comes next, even if it's different. And so for me now being in my late twenties, I can look back and say, wow, I made it through this experience, whatever comes next, I've, I've, I've got this because you have that life experience. But at 15, I didn't. And I wondered, is this how I'm always going to feel? Is it always going to be this lonely? Is it always going to hurt this much? I mean, I felt like I was just this walking, uh, you know, open sore. And was it always going to hurt? Was it ever going to heal? And eventually, you know, again, it was a lot of hard work. I mean, it doesn't happen overnight. I had to go through the grieving process. I had to go through years of counseling, but eventually I reached that place and, you know, it, it just, it, I'm so glad I did because it was so worth all the work to get here, even as hard as it was. You know, you said so many things that ring so true for us uh, and I'm going to kind of tick them off here, but one of them was allowing yourself to grieve. And Kristen and I say that all the time. You have to address this. You can't, whatever the situation is, you have to address your loss, whatever that loss or whatever that pain is. You can't, you will not ever reach that level of functionality that you clearly have unless you sit there and allow yourself to feel sorry for yourself and allow, you know, have the pity party. But one of the other things we say is you have to make the decision. Are you just visiting that place or are you going to live there? Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> so you, you visit, but you don't unpack your bags because that's devastating. You don't get a bunch of bricks and build a really strong house in the pit. <laughs> I've been known to be a developer of housing in the pit <laughs> and invite everybody in. You don't want to stay there. We get, you got to knock the house down. You just don't want to stay there. But the other thing that struck me was that you said that something that never should have happened became redemptive. Yeah. And we have both taken, and I think this is the broader lesson here, that you can, when you experience something like this, you can either have your pain, nurse your pain, oh, poor me, this happened, my life sucks, or you can do exactly what you've done and go, what the heck did I learn from this? This happened, it was awful, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but what did I learn? And the next step, how can I help somebody else? And that, that makes it about more than your experience. And that's where I think it becomes redemptive, not only for you, but for the people you reach. Absolutely. That's a great point. And I really, part of my journey, and I talk about it in the book of, I really had to get to that place where I got outside of my head and served others. I remember uh, a, a, a mentor of mine had said, you know, that, how important that was that he was really encouraging me to go volunteer and go do other things. And I ended up volunteering at uh, working at a, a, a camp for children with special needs. And it was such an amazing experience because I could get out of my own head, see that other people have hard things that happen too, or they experience challenging things and, and work with these families who were undergoing so much stress, but also see the commonality in, in, in the trauma that we've all experienced or the adversity we all experience. I mean, I think, you know, as we're sharing here today, that 
uh, suffering is a human story. And all of us, we, all three of us here have that, that human story. And we talk about what that looks like. And I think for me, we, it, you have to talk about it because so many people in the culture, I know, if, you know, even in my experience, people would tell me, you know, no, don't grieve and just put a smile on and it's okay. And, you know, and they kind of uh, truncate that process. And for me, I, I, I feel like that you're exactly right. The only way I could reach that place was grieving it. And I think it's just so important. Our, our culture doesn't talk enough about scars, both inside and out. And I think that scars, we, you know, we need to acknowledge them. We need to work through them and then use them to help others. And that's, that's something that I think is so important. And I, I really hope that, um, you know, through this book and through this experience of me telling the story, that that will be a way to impact others in that way and encourage them to do the same. Wow. You know, I'm finding myself, I, I want, I can't wait for when this episode is live and I want my daughter and her friends to listen to you because of your spirit and, and all of this and at the age that all of this happened to you because I'm, I'm almost wanting, not that I want to add more things to your plate, Samuel, but I told you we were going to be best friends forever. <laughs> but it's like, I want to develop a social media platform where you can talk about scars in a way that's positive and, and the things because all they see is the shiny stuff of everybody's mm-hmm. life. So the scars feel even more in the pit and, and how am I ever gonna get out of this and nobody's like me when, but you're right, everybody has suffering. Everyone, not that I would wanna hold Debbie down her platform, but there would be, it would be interesting that if there was a spot to, for kids to share these kinds of reality with building toolboxes and stuff like that, which I mean, we have a school program that is along those lines. And could you imagine if there was like this big space where it was, it was, um, all, all the likes and the hearts and the filters, all the fun <laughs> for people sharing that. Cause I know in my own, in my own house with my three kids, being able to talk about the way that you look at it through your lens, Hey, you going through this now is giving you all this stuff for the next thing that's hitting. And it's that mindset shift in a, in a teen is extraordinary for them. And people often say, Oh, your kids are so strong. Well, they're no different than anybody else, but we work through all of those things and, and try to find that positive at the end of it. I, I just, I love your, your whole perspective on this and that you're out in the world now sharing this message of, of scars and honoring them and learning from them and, and um, moving forward. It's such good stuff. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great idea. I, I, you know, I totally agree with you about social media. Actually, a few years ago, after one of my surgeries, one of my last surgeries, I posted a picture of myself and I, I looked like, you know, I felt and looked like I got hit by a Tonka truck. You know, I just felt like I just got taken down for the count. But, you know, I, I, I wanted people to see what it was like, that it wasn't just, you know, easy to go through these kind of surgeries and easy, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, plastic surgery today, you know, the things that they can do. And yes, it's amazing, but it's still really painful and it's, it's hard. still really hard. And, you know, I wanted people to see that. And I totally agree. Like, it, you know, for me going through, especially at that age, when you're looking at social media and you feel like, oh, everybody's happy and I'm not. And you're like, but, you know, everybody has these things, but, but people are, you know, our culture is encouraging others to post the perfect pictures and everything's airbrushed and everything's the way that, you know, everybody wants it to be. It's this utopia and it's not real. And so I totally agree. I mean, I think for me, you know, being out there and saying, hey, no, this is really hard and this is real and this is life is so important because people need to see that. They need to see others go through things so that they have hope that they can go get through the things that they're going through. Um, you know, I, I wish I'd had more people in my life who, when I was 15, who were coming alongside me and saying, hey, I've been through some really hard things. You're going to get through this. This is how I did it. You know, and, and maybe it won't work for you like it did for me, but here's some things that I can offer you, you know, and I can wish you well on your journey. I think that's so important and we need more of that for everybody today. Yeah. 
You know, you um, one of the things that I think is also really paramount, especially for kids, is that keeping in mind that your your accident was something that rarely happens. But you talk about the internal scars that a lot of people carry. And a lot of kids, you know, they may say, well, you know, that didn't happen to me, but I still feel terrible. The, the acknowledgement that you can have internal scars, that it's not necessarily a, a, a trauma that you've experienced, but just life is tough, you know? And to be able to honor those internal scars and allow kids to acknowledge them and know that it's okay, that everybody has that kind of stuff and there are tools to deal with that. That is really huge. So thank you for sharing that message. And uh, we're gonna do everything we can to help you continue sharing that message. So let's start by telling everybody where they can find you. <laughs> Thank you so much. So you can uh, find me at samuelmore-sobel.com is my website. Uh, you can also follow me at, on Twitter and Instagram at smore underscore Sobel. Uh, my book, Can You See My Scars is available on Amazon. There's a hardcover, Kindle and newly published audiobook version uh, for your listeners. And the thing I would add as well, uh, we've talked a lot about my story, but there's still a lot we haven't covered. And there is a twist ending about the true identity of the owner of the sulfuric acid. That will oh, no, no, no. You can't. Are so. you going to tell us that? Can you tell us that? Or do we have to find out through the book? The book. Oh my. Find out through the book. No. Oh, there's oh, a we're doing a follow-up episode now. We're going to have our listeners, we'll do a challenge that they go read the book and then we're going to have people come in and talk about this. I There's the production yeah, meeting. Um, I got to tell you, I got Breaking Bad running through my head. Like the, the, uh, like I'm like, this is a meth lab. This is This is not... This is not moving boxes of books. So I need to find out the answer. Oh, I can't wait now. This is awesome. Ooh, this is my big read. This and I'm going to read it faster than Mary Fran. I'm going to know before her. Okay. <laughs> That's another competition. All right. We're going to compete on that, that level too, because we don't do that enough. Samuel, you have just been such a delight. I am so happy we finally got together and, and, and got this um, off the ground and, and we can share your story with everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody, please check out Samuel Moore, Moore Sobel. And, and, and if you find out the answers, let us know before we do, because we have to know the answers. No, Mary Fran has to read the book. And I'm going to start, you need to follow us on social media, Burlington Resilient on Instagram, because I'm going to start putting stories up when I know the ending and I'm going to hit it because <laughs> I'm going to read way faster than her. All her grandkids keep coming to the shore house. <laughs> <laughs> my kids are on vacation like, and working so i'm gonna read it first somebody said to me the other day I was holding a book oh is that good i was like i don't know i haven't cracked the cover i have no idea it could be i don't know so but i'm in touch with all of her kids to keep sending the grandkids i'm gonna read the book and then no i think we should do this when we release this then i want everyone that reads it we'll get on social media and then we'll have a follow-up where everybody's in the zoom room and we'll talk about who thought what this is great. We're gonna have. We just started a book club with Samuel. Thank you, Samuel. There you go. <laughs> Woo! All right, everybody. Samuel, thanks again for joining us. This was a delight, as I said, and we want everybody to check you out. Follow up with us at brilliantlyresilient.net. Um, I don't know what we're gonna have going on when this actually airs. We had all sorts of stuff happening, but I'm gonna turn it over to Kristen because she usually ends it very well, and I lose my train of thought. So go. <laughs> wow. <laughs> How about everybody just continue to visit brilliantlyresilient.net about every six weeks, we have a new freebie to keep, like Samuel said, your tools in the toolbox. Some things work for you and some things don't. So you got to keep exploring new tools and follow us on, on Instagram and join the Facebook community. We'll see you next time. Bye everybody.
Thanks for tuning in to the Brilliantly Resilient Podcast. Join our Facebook group and follow us on YouTube to be inspired with tools to reset, rise, and reveal your brilliance.